Bradford Dickens had brought the actress Ellen Turnan an expensive bracelet after our production of The Frozen Deep, and the idiot jeweller had delivered the thing to the Dickens's home in London, Tavistock House, not to Miss Turnan's flat. As a result of this misdelivery, Catherine had given forth several weeks' worth of bovine mewlings, refusing to believe that it was merely her husband's token offering of innocent esteem to the actress who had done such a wonderful actually, I would say, barely competent job, as the hero's beloved Clara Burnham in our, uh, no, my play, about unrequited love in the Arctic. Dickens flew into a rage, shouting and roaring at the soon-cowed Catherine. I apologize for any inadvertent bovine connotation there. That his wife's accusations were a slur on the pure and luminously perfect person of Ellen Turnan. He insisted that Catherine make a social call on Ellen Turnan and Ellen's mother, showing everyone that there could be no hint of suspicion or jealousy on his wife's part. In essence, Dickens was demanding that his wife publicly apologize to his mistress, or at least to the woman he would soon choose to be his mistress when he worked up the courage to make the arrangements. Weeping, miserable Catherine did as she was bid, she humiliated herself by making a social call on Ellen and Mrs. Turnan. It was not enough to assuage Dickens' fury. He cast the mother of his ten children out. He sent Charlie, his eldest son, to live with Catherine. He kept the rest of the children to live with him at Tavistock House and eventually at Gad's Hill Place. All this from the man who epitomized, not just for England but for the world, the image of the happy home. And he was correct in his assumption that the crisis would pass without his readers abandoning him. If they knew of his domestic irregularities at all, they had obviously forgiven him. He was, after all, the English prophet of the happy home and the world's greatest writer. Allowances must be made. I have not forgotten the 9th of June, 1865, the true beginning of this cascade of incredible events. Dickens, explaining to friends that he was suffering from overwork and what he had been calling his frost-bitten foot since midwinter, had taken a week off from his work of finishing our mutual friend to enjoy a holiday in Paris. I do not know if Ellen Turnan and her mother went with him. I do know they returned with him. A lady whom I have never met nor much wished to, a certain Mrs. William Clara Pitburn, loved to send little bits of malicious gossip to the Times. This malevolent morsel, reporting the sighting of our friend on the ferry from Boulogne to Folkestone that day of the 9th of June, appeared some months after Dickens' accident. Travelling with him was a lady, not his wife, nor his sister-in-law, yet he strutted about the deck with an air of a man bristling with self-importance. Every line of his face and every gesture of his limbs seemed haughtily to say, Look at me! Make the most of your chance. I am the great. I am the only Charles Dickens. Whatever I may choose to do is justified by that fact. After disembarking at Folkestone, Dickens, Ellen, and Mrs. Turnan took the 238 tidal train to London. As they approached Staplehurst, they were the only passengers in their coach, one of seven first-class carriages in the tidal train that day. The engineer was going full speed, about fifty miles per hour, as they passed Headcorn at eleven minutes after three in the afternoon. 
they were now approaching the railroad viaduct near Staplehurst. Labourers were carrying out a routine replacement of old timbers on that span. Later investigation, and I have read the reports, showed that the foreman had consulted the wrong timetable and did not expect the tidal train for another two hours. It seems that we travellers are not the only ones to be confounded by British railway timetables. A flagman was required by railway policy and English law to be stationed 1,000 yards up the rails from such work. Two of the rails had already been lifted off at the bridge and set alongside the track. But for some reason this man with his red flag was only 550 yards from the gap. This did not give a train travelling at the speed of the Folkestone-London Tidal Express any chance of stopping in time. The engineer, upon seeing the red flag so tardily waved, and a much more soul-riveting sight, I am sure, upon seeing the gap in red...